Um, I'd like to point out that with suggestions for opening banter, Matt Lesh said, feel free to make fun of how old I am, which is code <laughs> for make sure you mention that today, September 2nd, 2021, is Matthew Lesh's birthday. So everyone well, hey. wish Matthew Lesh a happy birthday. Happy birthday, mate. I, I think I'm probably the best present you could have imagined. Ah, uh, this is what I've always wanted. A podcast recording. A podcast recording. An hour with my favorite people. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'll be joined by our Head of External Affairs, Morgan Schondermeyer, and Connor Tomlinson, the Policy Director at the British Conservation Alliance. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing market environmentalism, Geronimo the Alpaca, and the downfall of zero COVID. <music> Extinction Rebellion are back out in the streets, where almost every day the government proposes a new environmental tax or ban. But a new paper out from the ASI and the British Conservation Alliance, the BCA, suggests that there's a different, more market-centric approach to tackling environmental challenges. Connor, you've authored that excellent briefing paper for the ASI. Uh, but I'm kind of just wondering, don't we really just need to dismantle capitalism to solve environmental issues? Isn't that the only way that we can we can save the planet? Oh, I feel like I'm back in the university seminar, Matt. So thanks for the, thanks for the teeing up. Um, no, quite clearly, because... Capitalism, uh, as much as our opponents on the other side of the sort of eco-fascist and eco-socialist sides of the debate, which flank us ever more presently, um, mischaracterize it as a, as a purely profit-centric engine of, of exploitation, etc. It's not. It's the primary method, free markets particularly, of uh, exchanging goods and services, um, and has been the instrumental growth engine for increasing human ingenuity for our last how many centuries. And to apply that to the environmental sphere, and it's going to do a lot better than the central planning strategies, which particularly even the Conservative government in the UK and a lot of governments internationally. I know the UN's got a massive scheme, etc. Um, the Democrats looking at the Green New Deal and the states. That is going to put all of the errors of the bureaucracy, which will undoubtedly occur. Um, the onus of that is going to be on taxpayers. They're going to have to foot the bill for it. They're going to have to suffer the consequences uh, environmentally and economically of all of the problems with the policy. Instead, if you take a market-centric approach, you devolve all of the risks and therefore the rewards into the private sphere. And we actually reap the benefits of not just cleaner energy in the long term, uh, sustainable economy and ecology, but also clean work, clean air, clean water, and we don't have a massive hit to our pocketbooks. So no, socialism is, is not and is never the answer. <laughs> Although it does seem like often in this debate, um, you don't hear a lot from free marketeers, do you, Morgan? We've got this kind of traditional tendency to say, well, the environmentalists are a bit watermelon-like, um, red on the outside, green on the inside. Um, they just bang on about the environment because they want more state control of the economy. Um, and therefore, we should basically just dismiss the issues that they're bringing up. And we, we shouldn't engage too much on environmental issues because we're just going to be asking for more state intervention. Um, but I, I suppose that then creates the risk of vacating the field and, and leaving what is a quite a substantial important policy debate um, to people who don't necessarily have the right solutions or, or have the right approach to this. Yeah, I think it is an issue that we've seen a lot of ground on. I feel like a lot of people on the centre-right and the free market kind of identify this issue as a green issue or you know a left issue and we'll let them do it and kind of see the debate and don't really make any kind of 
good arguments for our case. But as Connor says, we have so many good arguments to make. Matthew, I know you're a fan of saying that free markets allow us to do so much more with less. And we've seen that um, since the Industrial Revolution. We've just gotten greener and greener because we have allowed industry to develop uh, more efficient ways of using resources. And uh, that's benefited the environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in why the government's approach has, in a sense, become quite status, Connor. So just this week, we, we saw reports, although now denied by the government, that they're going to be putting a tax on disposable nappies. But it, in, still in the real world, um, we've already had a new ban on plastic straws, stirs and cotton buds, talking about a new ban on single-use plastic plates, cutlery and cups, um, as well as a new plastic packaging tax. We, we've got upcoming bans on diesel cars and petrol, bans on new gas boilers, um, the new environmental bill that the, the governments are pushing through Palm at the moment um, it is basically a model where they're going to set a kind of Soviet-style targets on basically everything um, over, over the next five years, um, as well as put all these kind of bureaucratic duties onto ministers. It seems like, despite being a, a conservative government on the face of it and, and a supposedly more market-friendly government, um, there doesn't seem to be much appreciation of, of, of using markets in this government to achieve environmental goals. The, the focus um, seems to be very much on, on state action, state targets, state bans, um, state enforcement. Uh, and uh, is it basically that they haven't, exp- the, the government is kind of ignorant of the alternative approach? Is it that they, they you know, don't really have much faith in markets because they basically buy into the, the kind of socialist critique that, you know, capitalism is raping planet earth or something what do you think is driving the government policy in this area connor um well if i may i think when joe biden has his state visit i think he's going to be heartbroken if there is a nappy tax let's put it that way um i think actually it's probably going to be a temperamental uh issue more than anything because conservatism throughout history it's been defined by the anchoring into a grand narrative and post-war especially with the sort of discourse we've seen during the cold war there seems to be a, a delocalizing from a shared cultural cohesive narrative over the, over the last half century. And I think the Conservatives being philosophically rudderless is part of this, and that's why they've brought hook, line, and sinker into the uh, very international, very utopian, very utilitarian framework of policymaking. Um, instead, they, they see a goal, and they, as, as Boris said for his, his COVID policy, for example, we will stop at nothing to protect the British public. Well, I would, I would suggest that rights may be a good place to start stopping before you infringe on them. Um, I, I think that's probably why, as well, that's why our papers, for example, um, R1 and, and all the uh, research that you've produced, Matt, in a bunch of different areas, um, they're instrumental because conservatism temperamentally is very conscientious, so it means it's very action-driven, but it doesn't have a lot of new ideas. And that means that things become very rigid, very stagnant, and, and very tyrannical, as Jordan Peterson always bangs on about the archetype of the, uh, the tyrannical father. Um, the walls, which which won't allow any gates to open new things to come through. And I think we need to move quite laterally. And, and the free market is is the engine of innovation, which allows that in a practical sense. Um, but it's also in the idea sense, it allows diversity of voices and perspectives. And I think that's become part of the problem of the Conservative Party as well. Um, it's also the fact that there's no real opposition to it, either in the Commons or electorally, which holds them to account and allows a diversity of perspectives within the party, because uh, a lot of the um, skepticism for lockdowns, for example, and now a lot of the skepticism for the central planned economics for climate. I mean, I'm not a Thatcherite, but I'm sure Thatcher will be turning in her grave as to the amount that spending's going up. That has been relegated to the backbenches, and it's because the 
electoral dominance has been so certified by the Tories um, that they don't feel it's particularly under threat and they need to move in a new direction uh, away from this big spending stuff. Um, so I think I think it's actually a, more of a character problem than it is a lack of ideas problem because we're providing the ideas, but I think they need to be more amenable to new voices and, uh, and new perspectives. Yeah, and it's definitely a broader tendency in this government uh, across a whole wide array of fields that although Boris Johnson tried to put himself out there, you know, I'm a new kind of Tory that, that does feel quite stagnant in terms of what they're trying to achieve. You know, get Brexit done was was a, a successful um, uh, plan and, and of action to win an election. Uh, and so was COVID something that had to be addressed. But in terms of the longer term thinking and vision, that's, they've got a lot of challenges. Um, kind of just looping back around, though, to the, the kind of market environmentalism line, I'm, I'm kind of keen to unpack what we mean by that a little bit more as an approach. Um, so as, as Morgan said, I think the first element of it is focusing in on the, the fact that markets are efficient with their resource use. Classically, you know, the Soviet Union in order to, to produce the same amount of output um, or the same amount of goods and services was polluting substantially more, um, was unnecessarily whaling and, and did something like 98% of whaling um, between the time of the global whaling ban in 1991 because there were just these arbitrary targets of how many whales the Soviet Union need to, needed to harpoon. And then just kind of across the Eastern Bloc, you saw huge amounts of pollution at these factories that were just running not for good economic efficiency reasons, um, but rather because the, the central planners said that these factories need to keep them running and they need to keep them creating jobs for people. So na- naturally speaking, the, a market-based system, just purely by the fact that every single entrepreneur in a market system is trying to get more output at a lower cost of input, and that means producing more efficiently, using resources more efficiently. Uh, the classic is the Coca-Cola can that's got 40% less aluminium in it than it did 40 years ago. Um, and, and that means substantially less natural resource use. So that's the first element of, I think, it's just that push towards efficiency and innovation and all the good things that are going to be able to um, get our way out of uh, any kind of environmental struggle we have, which is just good resource use. But then I suppose there's other issues that aren't necessarily as clear cut um, in terms of market, traditional kind of free market solutions, where I guess a market environmentalist might say that there is some room for government intervention, but it should be done in a market-centric way. Something, And this is one of your key policies, um, kind of in your paper, is, is a carbon tax. So um, pricing the externality, creating a kind of property rights um, in, in the carbon emissions that we know have an external effect on it and just making um, producers internalise that cost to encourage that innovation, encourage it, it, it's properly accounted for in the economic process. And then there's also, um, although not so much a focus of your paper, but the traditional kind of let's allocate some property kind of Coasean approach to property rights where, say, you have fisheries and you, you don't want to make sure the fisheries are overfished and the tragedy of the commons, you, you set some property rights and you give everyone quotas about how much they're allowed to use of that particular resource. And that means that they conserve the resource. Um, is, 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 would you say that's a, a fair summation of a market environmentalist approach, Connor? Yeah, I, I'd say there's a, lot, there's a lot to unpack there. But I think uh, the main thing of market environmentalism is it recognises, as you said with the tragedy of the commons um, approach, uh, the, the property rights are the mechanism which has the most principal and most practical application for the sustainable protection of the environment. Um, and it doesn't allow things to be exploited by the complacency of collective use. And also it recognises things, as you said, with the, the bureaucracy approach with the Soviet Union, for example, the old adage of uh, we 
we pretend to work and they pay us to pretend to work. We pretend that they pay us. There was also factories that were making one left boot and one right boot because they were obsessed with, as we said, with the utopian engineering and, and utilitarianism, the equitable outcomes. And it's kind of concerning that a lot of government papers have equity as a, a primary value in there now rather than freedom and competition, which is the, the driving force of innovation. But it's also recognising those bureaucratic systems in the same way that, that Mises said with the, the complex systems or that Piaget said even in developmental psychology with the equilibrated states hypothesis, everything has an enforcement cost and you can't actually bring a lot of diverse individual perspectives under the same rubric and create an equal outcome for all because one entropy and uh, evolution are the primary forces of, of human existence so things are always going to change things are always going to advance and things are always going to decay and that's why you can't have a fixed pie economy for example um, you need that sort of hands-off approach that empowers individuals to make those choices to move laterally to constantly expand and find new ways of, of using and recycling and uh, improving resource extraction and, and usage and market environmentalism does that by devolving the processes uh, the risk and the rewards from the state aka the taxpayer and having it so that the costs and the externalities are internalized to the risk takers and you they benefit from that with profit incentives and we benefit from that from the products they produce and the positive externalities they produce after that. I will pick up on the carbon tax thing slightly because um, I remember in our discussions as we were developing the papers when this was a topic, uh, we were saying essentially, I, I had a bit of contention with it because obviously we, we both immediately got, got instinct, we're like, taxes, mm, the libertarian in me gets all flared up. Uh, but there's, there's an easy way, and I spoke on Julia Hartley Brewer's show, yesterday about this to conceptualize it essentially as a detox program for a societal drug that we got necessarily hooked on because fossil fuels constituted a necessary stage in human development without them we wouldn't even have a, an appreciation of nature without the industrial revolution we wouldn't have a rejuvenated wilderness to contrast to city dwelling and have all those romantic poets for example that's something in the paper uh, something a little bit the culture vulture in me put in there um but if we look at a carbon tax, for example, as an incursion on individual property rights by people who have, who have got that negative externalities um, produced by burning them and as alternative technologies exist and are up and coming, renewables are some issues, nuclear power, the issues is only with funding, not just production, then we can create a program which allows society to wean itself off of dependency on, on this technology. And once we produce viable technology to export around the world, we won't have uh, leapfrogging fossil fuel problems and we won't have fossil fuel burning as a necessary stage for developing nations to to catch up to the West technologically and with standards of living. Um, so market environmentalism is the framework, which is the, the hands-off way of empowering human ingenuity. And it also has us both more profitable, it doesn't curb the growth incentive, and it continues to raise our standards of living um, and uh, creates a sustainable environment and uh, economy for everyone replicable to other nations around the world as well. Uh, I think that one of the really interesting things in your paper, Connor, is the part about clean free trade. And I think you, you're linking um, a pretty clear free market principle of free trade with the environmental argument, pointing out that we can be very transparent about uh, where we get our food, where we get our resources, and pointing out that things like protectionism, you know, advocating for British beef or Welsh lamb over Australian beef or, Australia, or uh, New Zealand lamb is actually harmful to the environment. Because I think you used the example in your paper that New Zealand lamb is more energy efficient than Welsh lamb. Um, and it's counterintuitive because that includes transport costs halfway around the world. But if we factor these choices into uh, our everyday habits and hopefully our upcoming trade agreements with the rest of the world, we can actually make increased choice for consumers to go for that environmentally, more environmentally friendly um, choice in their everyday lives. Um, I know that the, the big, as you point out, the big issues with the environment are coming from 
carbon emissions, big industries and countries and focusing on more sustainable sources of fuel like nuclear. But I think that this is kind of a clear way we can link the traditional free market message of free trade with a more environmentally friendly angle. Mm. And and the other major issue as well you discussed in the paper, so we focus on three policy issues that the carbon tax, which we've already discussed. Um, and I think it's well so worth highlighting there that um, in our envisaging of a carbon tax, you'd reduce other taxes in the process. So it's not meant to be a revenue raising exercise. So the goal would be kind of distributionally not to leave people worse off. And that's what we're currently seeing in, in um, climate policies, effectively using regulations to put costs onto households in a subtle way rather than explicitly. So banning gas boilers and, and requiring people to, to not buy petrol cars is putting costs on people and there's hundreds of pieces of regulations and, and whatnot that, that are being used. And a carbon tax is a, a more efficient because it, you get your, your highest bang for buck in terms of um, carbon emission reduction, but also you, you've got revenue you can then give back to people and so that they pay less taxes elsewhere. Um, the final point, though, one that you're, you're keen on as well, Connor, is, is nuclear energy in, in terms of, of key to, to the uh, mix. And, and you came up with an excellent stat in terms of, well, if, if we compare an energy grid based upon renewable energy, um, what would we need in terms of storage capacity and how much would that cost? You, you calculated something like over two trillion pounds um, in battery storage in order to have a, a, a grid that purely runs on, on solar and, and wind. Um, and I think your, your central point there was that um, nuclear is, is not only safe, but it's also essential in terms of having baseload energy and decarbonisation. Yeah, I, I was kind of shocked, actually, when we worked out those stats. It was myself and I worked with a nuclear engineer on staff. I'll give him a shout out. Sam Curran, he's a lovely fella. Um, he was happy to contribute. We were knocked dead by the calculations we had when we looked at the best possible battery storage capacity technology currently, which is uh, in Australia. So there you go, Matt. Um, it's developed by Tesla and the cost of it is so immense. And it would be to, to create enough battery storage to have a fully renewable grid just for the UK. We would have to have all of the global battery production between when I wrote the paper in March to 2028 just to facilitate renewable grid. And that's at the same time we're doing the petrol car ban, which is completely idiotic. I'm going to plug an article that I have on the peak, which is the British Conservation Alliance offshoot publication about all of this and, and all the data it goes into and also the social implications. It's, it's a bloody disaster. But at the same time, we're doing electric cars and all the other Paris coordinations are doing the same thing with their grids and electric cars. And it's also at the same time we've just pulled out of Afghanistan the mire that that foreign policy problem is, where a lot of lithium deposits are. So we're going to have a shortage. And we've got um, computer ship shortages at the moment because the material's not going... You know, you can you're heading for a brick wall, and rather than hitting the brakes, you're shutting your eyes um, if you if you don't adjust. And with the nuclear power thing, all of the stats we've put in the paper, and I, I advise everyone go and read this. And I've been harping on about this for quite a while. Um, it's not only safe; the waste isn't as much of an issue. We, as in the UK particularly, we are one of the gold standard um, people for regulations, and it's not too obstructive. The only issue is cost, and we can leverage that with uh, adjustments to the feed-in tariff, and also using um, tax-exempt sustainable infrastructure bonds and loans, which um, uh, I wrote a paper on this just before December about COVID recovery, using that in a similar fashion for a, for a lot of different things. But this is nuclear power is more of a case study thing. I think the nuclear power opposition lobby is actually, as I mentioned before, with the utilitarian approach during the Cold War, it's one of my special subjects, a man who spins a lot of historical plates. Um, it's one of those things where there was an existential threat at the time of nuclear war. And so nuclear power got conflated with that, especially with Chernobyl. And I think ironically, Chernobyl is the exact example of why you don't want to go down the socialist route, because that was less of a failure of the technology and more of the bureaucracy, which didn't allow for people to raise alarm bells about um, the insufficient protection methods at the time. And it's actually in favor of the market because nuclear power has been made 
not only a lot safer and re- produce far more deaths uh, annually than, than coal ever will, um, but also it's uh, it's avoided all of the pitfalls of not only the emerging renewable technologies, but the fossil fuels of the past. So to say nuclear power is a pending disaster, etc., is actually pointing out exactly the failures of the socialist policies that a lot of the um, anti-nuclear but the pro-big government spending lobby uh, endorse. Mm. Yeah, I think the central point here is uh, nuclear is cost-effective, although there are there are big capital costs to build it. But it's it's certainly the the, the most cost-effective sustainable way to produce low carbon energy and it is extremely efficient um, in terms of just just the amount of energy you can get out of a single nuclear plant it's just it's just not comparable to practically anything else really and we've had a, a conspiracy against what is the, the most efficient way to produce low carbon energy um and a zion lights um who spoke at the asi previously was was involved in extinction rebellion but left over the fact that they refused to endorse nuclear energy um, makes this point extremely well that um, the, the IPCC have explicitly said that the only way you can decarbonize is with a large contribution of nuclear energy. Uh, it, it's, it's practically the only way to do it because we just don't have that ability to, to store the energy and it creates all these grid issues to use um, solar and, and wind. It's just, it's just not consistent energy source in the way nuclear is. But on that note, from, from one controver- scientific controversy uh, to another, let's have a chat about a certain alpaca. <music> Joiner the Alpaca is now dead after two positive TB tests and a four-year-long legal battle by Helen McDonald against the government. Morgan, this has really blown up as an issue over the last month, um, and I, I had to ask myself more than once or twice why we were spending all this time talking about an alpaca. Why do you think this kind of grabbed uh, the, the national imagination in, in August 2021? I guess it was something especially that had been going on for quite a while. I remember I was in America on holiday and you sent through it an op-ed that you'd written about an alpaca saying, can you please edit this? <laughs> I thought you had gone mad. I think also, Morgan, you were a little bit annoyed when I said we're coming up to kill an alpaca. Yeah. And your initial reaction was, why the poor alpaca? Why are we? Why is the ASI pro-killing an alpaca? I thought we were we were calling to call all of the alpacas in the UK. I thought this was the new badger call. I was very concerned. <laughs> but... I was quick, I was quickly won over to your argument that it it was the scientifically right thing to do to kill Geronimo, eliminate, neutralize, because um, he did pose a, a risk to um, other livestock humans. Um, we wouldn't make the same decision about a uh, cow that came down with tuberculosis. I mean, this country has a long legacy of issues with bovine diseases, things like that, which cause huge disruption to the economy and um a a massive industry that is farming so yeah i was i was one around to the argument uh as cute and cuddly as geronimo is we do need to worry about the biosecurity of the uk i think this took everyone's imaginations for this for the same reason now i was originally taken by it is this is a very cute little animal um you can see the love between the owner and uh geronimo uh but at the end of the day uh, the government has to make these tough decisions to uh, protect the viability of the rest of the UK's biodiversity. Yeah, it seemed like on the face of it, a pretty open and shut case. I don't know know what approach you took on it, Connor, but if you've got two known to be quite accurate tests suggesting that this animal has um, bovine TB, which is quite a vicious disease, it, doesn't necess- it can sometimes be asymptomatic, but still infectious um, uh, and a risk to other animals. And you have quite consistent rules that say, and I, and I did some research on this in terms of, well, why can't you just you know, try to treat it? But unfortunately, there actually are no approved treatments um, for 
TB in animals and there's a risk of creating an antibiotic resistant strain if you start using antibiotics you have to use multiple so it's all very complex um, medically and, and therefore the consistent policy is if an animal gets TB you put it down and we, we already do that to about 500 cows a year uh, but we just seem to have this moment of, of you know, collective mania to some extent about putting down I think the sun obviously needed something to put on the front page uh, and in the end, there was that little protest that there were meant to be alpacas at, but none showed up to, and it was only a, you know a small group of, of forty or fifty people, which makes you wonder if this was just a media story. Um, yeah, well, what did you make it all, Connor? Well, I'm just shocked to hear all of this, considering I thought you was put down for how bad that fringe was. I mean, I had that haircut when I was twelve. Uh... As for uh, as for do I think you should have been put down? Ever me being the contrarian, and I'm happy to be proved wrong here. But in the research I did, and listening to some of the um... Uh, people that were affiliated with the owner and some of the people that were with, with DEFRA and whatnot authored some papers. There was some questions as to the accuracy of the test, because as far as I know, they involved injecting the tuberculin to institute uh, an immune response. And Geronimo in particular had about five of the injections before he tested positive. And some of the post-mortem and cultural analyses of these tests... Um, they found a very high uh, false positive rate. I think it was about eighty percent. Was the I can't remember the exact guy who was talking about this, but he was also in. Uh, he was the gentleman who flew across to help uh, pen farthing evacuate his animals. He was. Um, I know he's a veterinary scientist. Uh, so false positive testing seems to be something we quite familiar with in the in the current COVID environment. Also, the head of former head of pathology at the VLA for Defra co-signed a letter saying that some of the killings like these were often on false premises so that's why John was owner actually asked for a PCR test instead and was denied for it and I think it's because uh, both the costs of the lawsuit had dragged on which is something that's pretty much an expose of the inefficiency of bureaucracies we've been talking about with market environmentalism but also I think the concern would have been the precedent set for then oh well were my were my animals accidentally bumped off and my livestock killed because of the inaccuracy of a potential test. Uh, and I think that's why the government was so stubborn on this. Um, as for how it captured the collective imagination, we've had animal stories since particularly the pandemic started because originally it was thought about, uh, it might have been dogs, then it was bats to human transmission, then it's talking about the Wuhan Virology Institute, which is raising a lot of eyebrows. So since then, we've had a lot of conversations about whether or not China's animal uh, cruelty practices are a tenable predicate to put international sanctions on them. I wrote a piece on this particularly uh, a few months ago. Well, it might have been last year now. That's how old I feel. Um, and then immediately it's wrapped around to the pen farthing circumstance where we're talking about, okay, do animals have uh, equal status to people? Do they have a degree of rights? Um, is it a priority to evacuate them from the international incident happening over there? So I think it's caught the general trend of animal lovers in the country also riding the waves of animals being involved in multiple international crises scenarios and uh, I, I think it's one of the stories that's more pulled on the heartstrings if anything and the the yeah. battling evidence which you've presented here and which other people have presented means that it's a hot button of contention yeah it, it seems likely to me based upon the, the the claims of the government at least and the government scientists which we can't of course put 100 percent certainty into that if you test positive twice um over time, you're, you're more likely not to have the virus. Now, I think the only way to tell for certain is in, in a postmortem, um, and it may very well be the fall of this government if it turns out that Geronimo did not, in <laughs> fact, have TB. It could all be all, all be over for virus. Put put aside, you know, the COVID mess, and that'll make a really interesting A-level politics uh, exam question in about twenty years, won't it? What what led to the fall of Boris Johnson? <laughs> and the correct answer will be Geronimo the alpaca. I mean, it, it does seem. Um, I mean, everyone loves animals. 
uh, and and has a certain affection for them. I, I I just can't ethically understand the idea. And just just on that kind of um, penfathering point about prior, effectively what the, the government forced them um, the armed forces uh, to prioritize the um, evacuation of animals over humans. And I know an argument's made, well, he bought in his own private jet and, and it was all funded privately. And that's obviously true, but in terms of the time and effort um, it, it took the, the forces on the ground, that time and effort could have, and that they spent putting, getting all the, the dogs and cats into the airport, which is obviously a huge struggle, was a huge struggle, and then getting onto plane. That was time that couldn't be spent focusing on getting Afghan interpreters and um, British nationals and uh, other vulnerable people and evacuating them. And it seems absurd that there was so much of a high level of popular support for prioritising these animals over effectively prioritising humans. And it, it seemed like it, it was all the wrong way round to me. Yeah, I don't know if I'm just like a cold-hearted person, but I don't understand Definitely this at welcome. all. I probably am, yeah, but I don't understand this at all. I know that MPs have been getting like inundated with emails from their constituents saying we have to save the animals we have to save the animals and i'm just looking at it like i'm as big an animal lover as any but when you have a humanitarian crisis finite resources and also finite attention like the, the fact that we're putting our attention on this animal issue means we're not talking about the women who are going to be subjugated to intense restrictions you know potentially assaults uh things like that um interpreters who are being murdered we're not talking about that because we're talking about a bunch of cats and dogs and it's really heartbreaking to see that that's what this country has um decided to prioritize it, it's a bit of a, a low moment i think maybe maybe i'm just over being over dramatic but i feel like it's a low point in our moral compass if we're focusing on the lives of some cats and dogs who probably aren't at risk from the Taliban? They, they are, they absolutely are. The actual version of Islam the Taliban follow um, involves the execution of dogs because they see them as harbingers of demons. So they, to be fair, they are. Uh, also, as far as I'm aware, the practical concerns of the situation were that they were only stowed in the cargo hold where health and safety wouldn't have allowed any of the um, passengers, human passengers to go anyway. I, I, I take the cargo hold argument, but as like Matt said, the effort of getting these animals from where they were being held to the airport onto the planes, like that, that is, undeniably effort that could have been spent elsewhere it's a distraction by the military and, and the defense yeah. establishment in, in the moment with the most insanity in the, the last hours of evacuation um i suppose that you could you could make an argument at that point actually taliban weren't letting through afghans um and that's the reason why he had to leave behind his staff um so i don't necessarily blame him for leaving behind his staff although it would have been good if it was you know he just got out the staff earlier um and focused on getting out the staff rather than focusing on I'm getting out the animals. I'm kind of interested, though, in, in the, the ethical argument here. I'm, of course, kind of, you, you know, your policy director at a, a conservation organization. Do you effectively say, well, you know, one, and if you're going to make a kind of utilitarian case here, one dog life is equal to the one human life? Or how, how do you how do you separate that out? I think that's actually the, effectively the, the question here we have to ask ourselves. You know, is is maybe five human lives equal to, to one dog life or sorry perhaps other way around five dog lives equal to one human life you know if it's if it's worth it in, in that kind of calculating sense which feels a bit unethical but if we have to make in a practical sense we, we effectively did make a decision but if we knowingly made a decision you know how many afghans is it worth not evacuating in order to evacuate those cats and dogs 
Well, you'll never catch me making a utilitarian argument, Matt. So I, I, I would reject. I would reject the framing. I'd also reject the framing of uh, uh, we made the decision because we didn't. The only reason we're in this circumstance is one because of the horrendous American foreign policy failures, the non-notifying of NATO, the inability to create a framework before the evacuation that prioritizes evacuating civilians, interpreters, and those who work with us. I mean, for God's sake, we left behind CVs of people who just applied to jobs and weren't even there. Um, we left behind the giant list in the British Embassy, all of our biometric data, and we threw the, those people to the wall. So as is a theme of this podcast, it's a massive failure of government bureaucracy and the people who are not involved in decision making are always paying the price. Um, don't think it's utilitarian calculus to focus on both issues at once. Obviously, the, the issue there is the government attention is divulged because of one, the media cycle and two, the finite resources of bureaucracy. But then that's an issue of centralizing the bureaucracy in the first place. As, as we've already said, it was a it was a private effort to get pen farthings, animals and staff out of the country. But the issue is they've got to jump through the government hurdles. And so if they were less less restrictive and less incompetent, that the actual devolution of labor to get both um, the interpreters and their families out and the animals and the staff and farthings place out would not be uh, an issue. So I'd say it's actually the utilitarian framework and the government bureaucracy, which is at fault here in the first place and, and not the sort of attempt to salvage both. I mean, I think we discussed in the previous podcast where we went into Afghanistan a bit more depth. I don't dis- disagree mm. uh, whatsoever with any of your analysis uh, about the, the, the failure of American Afghanistan. And I think that's got some broader implications that we're going to be talking about for a long time. But I'm, I'm still, though, interested in that n- relatively narrow question, which is, you know, at that moment in time, when you have a choice to, to put whether or not you think we should have had that choice. And I agree with you that this should not have been the situation that we were in. But unfortunately, you, you couldn't go back in time at that, that point in time. Whether or not it was essentially the right thing to do to, to, to prioritise the, the life of, of those animals um, over the, the, the potential life of, of Afghans. And I think that's the, the kind of central issue raised there. But I, I think on that note, it's probably time to move on to our final section of this podcast and a little bit more talk about government failure when it comes to zero COVID. A number of countries in East Asia like Taiwan and South Korea, as well as Australia and New Zealand, were celebrated last year for having eliminated COVID-19, both saving lives and limiting the economic damage from the pandemic. But as most developed nations are now vaccinated away out of the COVID-19 mess and getting back to normal, these countries have been reintroducing strict lockdowns. So I'm kind of interested to start with the thought about whether or not uh, adopting a zero COVID strategy was the right approach last year. Um, and I, I suspect that there's a strong argument for it. Um, I don't know whether you, you know, Morgan and Connie necessarily buy this, but if you could do it, if you're a country like Taiwan or Australia, or New Zealand, that has an effect, a relatively effective bureaucracy, you shut your borders, you did good contact tracing, you spent relatively limited time under lockdowns, um, more time free than, than certainly the UK and elsewhere in the world, that going for zero COVID early on, particularly before we had vaccines, actually made a lot of sense. There's a few things going on here, I think. Back in you know March, uh, April, May 2020, we saw these countries who uh, had a few commonalities between them. They had a, a memory of SARS, uh, which I think is incredibly important in how effective they were at tackling COVID uh, in the beginning. They had these social norms uh, of cleanliness, uh, rule following, um, and they also were able to uh, geographically isolate themselves. So New Zealand is very far away from everywhere else. Australia is very far away from everywhere else. So it's easy for them to geographically isolate themselves. So when there was no potential for a vaccine, when even the most optimistic people were saying 18 months, it made sense that they would pull these levers to 
protect themselves, the livelihoods, the economy, and uh, be able to, you know, get back to normal, I suppose. I mean, Matthew, you have firsthand experience of this. You, you managed to make it back to Australia and you went through the two weeks of hotel quarantine and then got however many months of freedom during the summer. We were doing the podcast and Matt was saying how he just came back from Shakespeare in the park and Daniel and I were <laughs> sitting in our apartments another day. Um, so yes, that strategy worked for them at that time, but it's a completely different world. We have vaccines now. We have tools that can get uh, COVID under control you don't have to continuously lock down. And I think that, as we've seen with Matthew's comments on this, people in New Zealand and Australia kind of refuse to recognize that the calculus has changed. They are standing very steadfastly by their decisions that they made back in 2020, which, uh, again, I argue worked for them at that time. Uh, but things need to have, have changed and need to change now. And the, the uh, Kiwis and, and Aussies are, are very resistant to any sort of suggestions that they're on the wrong path now um, because they point to our extended lockdowns and our death rate and say, well, you were wrong then. Both things can be true. Okay, well, I don't think both things are true. And finally, I think this topic links wonderfully well to our prior topics of sort of utilitarian frameworks and uh, animals, because you cannot eliminate a disease as we've seen with the uh, replication and mutations that has animal reservoirs. So the zero COVID policy is an entire misnomer, because you will never stop transmission, at least. Um, You also never there's a massive reduction from hospitalization and death from the vaccines, um, especially as it goes up the age brackets and the immunocompromised, but it doesn't prevent. So the zero COVID in totality is a, a complete pipe dream. And it's, it's the same utopian outcome, which is infeasible. Um, and it, it's the same collectivist mindset that, that quashes individual freedoms. Also, um, lockdowns were never particularly necessary. They weren't particularly effective either. They, they had massive transmission vectors in um, among key workers and in necessary places like supermarkets. Uh, They went against a Great Barrington Declaration, which was the prior uh, model for pandemic handling, which emphasized personal responsibility. And aside from the loo roll mass panic buying, which never made much bloody sense to me, um, there were quite a lot of personal responsibility behaviors being undertaken long prior to the government's paying attention. It was being scarcely covered in the media, but obviously in our modern digital age, you can get quite a lot of information about what's going on overseas. And so a lot of people were already doing uh, personal responsibility behaviors like mask wearing. The efficacy of that is still very much up for debate. And now there's about more masks than jellyfish in the ocean, which isn't exactly a great environmental outcome. Um, Also, we bought a lot of them from China. So it seems like we've rewarded them for unleashing the pandemic, but also the hand washing and social distancing, etc., was just common practice. And I think that would have been a much better um, idea to go about because not only is it slightly more practical, but it also uh, preserves the individual freedoms which are entirely inviolable. And I don't think, as we've said about utilitarianism before, the government has any license to tread on individual rights to create a collective goal. I'm, I'm not sure I quite uh, buy that argument in a few respects. Um, first of all, just on the question, you know, do lockdowns work? I think it was pretty clear and pretty consistent that as as countries enter into lockdowns, they reduce cases. And in, in particular, the, the countries we're talking about, the zero COVID countries, um, they use lockdowns to great effect in terms of um, at least uh, suppressing or eliminating the virus for a long period of time and living in a, in a relative state of freedom. Now, I don't know whether that's, I think you're right, Connor, that that's not a sustainable long-term strategy. And in a, in a sense, it, it, effect, it depended on, um, having vaccines, and it was a bit of a, a bit of a lucky gamble that was taken because unless every country could effectively lock down to eliminate the virus, if we get rid of it, like we more or less did get rid of SARS, one, 
um, then it was going to keep in circulating. And as long as, as soon as it kind of seeded so far across the world, it, it wasn't something that you could necessarily eliminate completely. So, but eliminating it in your back garden and then vaccinating, and this is where a lot of these countries have actually failed, which is not using the opportunity to vaccinate. They've, they've had time to vaccinate and now they've got this more infectious Delta strain coming along um, and now they've been forced to re-enter lockdown. So you've got over well over a thousand cases a day um, in New South Wales at the moment. And that's um, as a result of uh, the, the fact that they haven't vaccinated widely. And maybe that's not the cases, but the fact that they've got such a low level of population vaccinated, if they didn't have lockdowns at the moment, then it would actually be quite a danger to the population. And you'd have uh, the, the classic risk of, of COVID, which is which is overwhelming the healthcare system. But just in terms of that ethical argument, you know, should the government have any ability to take um, relatively authoritarian moves in, in certain contexts? I'm not sure... I necessarily buy the idea that um, when your liberty infringes on that of somebody else, aka your actions can cause risk to other else, other people in terms of spreading a virus, that the ability of the state to, to limit your freedoms, at least for a temporary period in a proportional way, um, is zero. Um, I think that in this case, we, we did have a, a temporary justification for greater state action in the name of um, fewer people dying. And I don't think that's something that you can necessarily dismiss entirely. Now, you can, I think, make a lot of genuine arguments about did things go too far? Were certain um, steps not necessary? Um, how long did this go on for? You know, why did why were we locked down still in May uh, or, or April when, when we were already vaccinated the most vulnerable? I think those are all fair arguments to make. But I, I don't think it necessarily stacks up that you, you could have taken a different approach or that the Great Barrington Declaration approach could have worked, which more or less focused on, well, let's just isolate the vulnerable. But it, it's actually practically speaking, that that was never actually um, outlined of how you would do that. And the reason why it is actually quite difficult is because the vulnerable often require care from others. And then once you have it spreading around a community, it, the virus, is, it's very hard um, to get to the point where it doesn't reach the vulnerable people. And then once it reaches them, you end up um, putting an extreme pressure onto hospital systems, um, if, if not overwhelming the healthcare system, and then you, you lead, to, lead to cascading additional tens of thousands of people dying. Now, now the UK... Um, wasn't particularly effective in terms of its pandemic response. And I think there were a lot of state failure in that. You know, for example, when it comes to test and trace, um, ideally we, we would have actually kept the virus out as well. And if, if, a lot of, if every country could have done that, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in where the COVID is, is spreading around the world. But in the reality where we are, the COVID will keep them spreading. So we've got a slightly different calculus to make. But if, if, we, if we had state success in the first instance, we wouldn't be in that problem. But now that we've, we've got COVID spreading around, we, we've got to do our best to, to try to live with it in, in the longer term. And, and vaccines are, are the godsend to do that. But I think last year, we, we probably didn't have much choice when it came to, to taking the, the, the restrictive stance we took pre-vaccine. Uh, lockdowns are always the political choice. And to say that the government has the uh, subjective right to... In parasite stress hypothesis fashion, for anyone who's not familiar with that, it's the correlation between the prevalence of infectious disease in society and the rate of authoritarian policies which enforce social conformity. Um, that's a pretty well-recorded thing throughout history. And those authoritarian policies don't wane because the exact same policies you use to get into power um, are the exact same policies that you're going to employ to uh, sustain it. That's why we're seeing vaccine passports rolled out now, even despite the contradictions of, okay, well, if you're jabbed, you're protected, um, or if, if you're saying, oh, uh, everyone, pretty much everyone being jabbed, especially the vulnerable, is not uh, sufficient enough protection, you're making an anti-vax argument, which is kind of critical of the government to do. Um, so to say that the government can 
excused amassing authoritarian controls despite alternatives being there and also being morally untenable in uh, non-crisis circumstances. Morals aren't universal after all. You're just negotiating the severity to which the boot is going to be stamping on your face forever. Um, so I, I think we're, we're never going to come to a head on this map because it seems it, it sounds like uh, just a, a discarding your principles the moment the sky is falling. Um, I don't think we're discarding our principles. I think that one of the fundamental uh, roles of the state is to protect the safety of their uh, citizens. Uh, most people identify that as defense, but in, a, in an external crisis like a deadly virus, um, I think that those things do go hand in hand. I obviously agree with both of your points that um, there's a lot of state failure and a lot of overreach, um, but I don't think that... Um, the government stepping in to uh, address negative externalities of a deadly virus um, and solving a community problem, um, which is the fact that personal responsibility was never going to go far enough to keep people safe. Um, and I, I don't think that those two things necessarily uh, can't coexist. Um, I think back to the original question about zero COVID, I, I agree that zero COVID is not a thing. That's not a strategy that you can possess. Um, I also think that the position we are in now, uh, the vaccine has uh, decreased the length between uh, cases and deaths. Um, and I think we need to be very clear about that, that increases in cases no longer means increases in deaths. So we can't run shy of cases. We need to focus on um, vaccinating people so that we can get back to normal, living with COVID as a low level um, disease that circulates through the population much like the flu. Um, but I did not take that position a year ago before we had vaccines because it wasn't the case that COVID is just like the flu. It was more deadly, more transmissible. Um, but I think the thing that we need to keep in mind now is that vaccines have changed the calculus. I suppose I'm um, going back to Connor's point for a second. There is, there is a, a point at which you have to wonder as, um, I guess, classical liberals, libertarian free marketeers, when we generally oppose state intervention, um, when it might be justified. And and you discussed earlier, Connor, in, in your paper, you discussed the carbon tax as an example of that, where there's a, a negative externality on other people's actions. Um, and effectively, you know, your freedom to swing your fist ends at the point at which it reaches um, my face. Uh, and when you have a kind of negative societal impact of your actions, um, it is not unreasonable for the state to, to put some kind of restrictions on your liberty. Um, and, and that's kind of an unfortunate fact of living in a um, relatively free society is that when certain things are going on, um, and those limited, those freedoms have to be restricted. And I think that to be restricted in, in a limited way as possible to achieve very specific goals. And I don't think it's always been the case during COVID. Um, and I'm more than happy to listen to critiques of the way the government has responded. I'm just not sure in terms of the alternative, um, Let's say, Connor, COVID was 20 times worse that it, you know, killed rather than, I don't know, 1%, 2% of the people who got it, which adds up to hundreds of thousands of people. Let's say it killed um, 10, 20% of people um, and you had millions of deaths. At that point, would you say, well, this is a bad enough virus in order to justify some quite severe state intervention? Or is, is your principle absolute no matter what? Uh, so I'll address the first bit. I don't think it's an apt analogy to conflate the uh, fossil fuel burning and the externalities with that to COVID and also to the swinging fist analogy. The fossil fuel one is, I think, perfectly apt to the swinging fist analogy because it's a direct action taken with knowledge of the negative externality being definitely produced. Um, I think COVID and 
transmitting it to someone else when, for example, you can be entirely asymptomatic. I mean, I had COVID a couple months back and I just thought I was hungover for an extra day, which happens more than what people might think. I think it's uh, more to do with, okay, if you trip over and knock into someone and knock them flying on the pavement, you're not going to be prosecuted for assault because there's no intention behind the action. So you can't create a, a punitive moral, moral punishment for it. And that's exactly what locking people in their homes is. It's the same sort of thing as a, a house arrest as, as you would if you were a prisoner with a with an ankle bracelet. Um, so I don't think they're, they're comparable because you're, you're treating transmission of COVID as sort of a moral sin that the individual is capable of committing. And I don't agree that that's possible. Um, as for the, again, utilitarian calculus of the number of deaths, um, as for well, I don't I don't think you can negotiate the principle based on the number because then again you're just negotiating. Okay, how how quickly will I lose? Um, I think it's an inviolable moral principle. As for before as well with the Great Barrington Declaration, it being in, unable to be produced. Obviously, this is outside my wheelhouse as a more environmental policy legislator. I did want to make an article on this at some point, but time seems to have eluded me. There was an idea of creating it so that the clinically vulnerable who were provable to have pre-existing medical conditions, like me, I mean, when I walk up the stairs, I sound like a bottle of Tic Tacs, um, there is the idea that you can write off as tax exempt the extended sick pay for businesses and you can claim that back at the end. So rather than doing a society-wide furlough scheme that puts us massively in debt, it's a, it's a targeted scheme which allows people to be isolated. So more clever policy making um, and a principles first approach would have definitely avoided not just the uh, social impacts, um, all of the extra suicides, all the extra addiction problems, uh, the problems with you know people being unable to form relationships, or driving tests, etc. For that's going to play out for how many years, but also the economic problems that are going to plague us for ages, and it's going to be the fodder of, of and content of many a paper from the ASI. I do predict. Well, many a debate to continue having, and I think this is one where we're probably going to keep in having for, for a long time to come about the events of uh, 2021. But on that note, thank you very much uh, for listening to this episode of the Pin Factory podcast. You've been listening to me, Matthew Lesh, um, from the ASI, as well as my colleague Morgan Schottemeyer, and our special guest, Connor Tomlinson, from the British Conservation Alliance, who is the author of the, the most recent ASI paper, It's Easy being green available at adamsmith.org slash research. Um, you can subscribe and rate the ASI podcast in your chosen podcast provider. And please tune in next week for more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.